So let me start. Today, well, this week is the week that the church celebrates Epiphany. And Epiphany is described as the manifestation of Christ to the world through the acts of the Magi. Um, but it's also known as a moment of great or sudden revelation or realization. It's the aha moment. And I think the two of them are quite closely related because an aha moment, I think, is God's provision. It's God's spirit speaking to us and revealing to us. And I think it's something that happens on an ongoing basis. Um, so the, uh, the, the story of the Magi comes from Matthew 2, and I'll read that quickly. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About the same time, wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And then we know Herod was deeply disturbed, um, and then after the Magi had been to see the Christ, they present him, presented him with his gifts. Um, and then it says that um, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So again, it's God's Spirit intervening in this, in this act and um, directing these magi where to go. So God is revealed to us over and over again. And epiphany, I feel, is an ongoing revelation. And it's a response to an act of creation. It's the birth of the new. Um, in this regard, I'm fortunate enough to have been given this little book called Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, and it's written by a Japanese internationally renowned architect called Makoto Fujimura. So I've been reading that, and I think it ties in a lot with Epiphany, so I'm going to draw on quite a few of his ideas from this particular book. So he sees the Bible the whole Bible as a work of art. He sees it as poetry. And we get to know God through a journey that requires making. So God is the creator. Um, and God created all things. So the way we get to know God is through the act of making. And he contrasts this with the Western idea of um, functional utilitarianism. And he focuses on making. He says we should be more concerned with making and creating rather than just being functional interpreters of, of what's around us. Um, and he says God did not need to create the world. He didn't have to create it. He created it out of abundant love. And this abundant love is still around us. Even as we sang this morning, your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on us. 
so there is this abundant love that is still around us, and I think we fail to, to um, tap into that abundance all the time when we restrict ourselves just to a kind of a functional worldview of those things around us. Um, but God also gave man the ability to create. So Adam's first creation was to name the animals. In Genesis we hear, So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the wild birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each of them. He gave the names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. So the act of naming the animals was an act of making into God's creation. And we have this gift, we have this ability to make into God's creation and to create into it. Um, so work, in that sense of Adam naming the animals and the birds and that, was not cursed by God. We often think of, of work as being this this laborious thing that we go through, but it, work was never cursed. It was the serpent who was cursed. Work is still given to us as acts of creation that we enjoy and that we go through. Um, but we have to then consider also uh, that in the garden, it was not a perfect place. Uh, even before the fall, sin and deception was there. Remember that, that Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. So it was in this place that we might think is, is a place of perfection. Well, that's where Adam and Eve were deceived. So we have to be very careful about how we understand um, things like the Garden of Eden, the place of perfect, and even our ideas of heaven, that we have to have more complex understandings of these things. And I think he starts to make an argument for a, for a more complex understanding of, of the creation and the new creation. Um, so God's plan is to bring brings Christ into the world, and through the death of Christ, we are, we are given a new life. We are, we are given uh, redemption. And we know the scriptures from Corinthian. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. That's from the NIV. And from the New Living, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has become. And we're all familiar with those scriptures. But... Uh, this, this artist, this writer, he kind of takes it a little, bit, a little bit further. He says we are not just being restored so to some kind of original, before the fall, perfect self. We are being made into a new creation. It's a recreation greater than the original self. And N.T. Wright goes on to, to say, God does not just mend, repair, and restore. God renews and generates, transcending our expectations of even what we desire 
beyond what we dare to ask or imagine. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. We are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown onto the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. So, God is not restoring us to Eden. God is creating through us a garden an abundant city of God's kingdom. And there's that idea of abundance again. It's a new, a new understanding. What we build, design, and depict on this side of eternity matters because in some mysterious ways those creations will become part of the future city of God. But our life and our acts of creation in this world are not without suffering or persecution. John 16, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So this artist again says, in the Christian journey, the bodily resurrection of Christ is not the happy ending, but the beginning of the new, with the entry point being suffering and persecution. So whereas we think that we are liberated by this restoration, he's, he's saying, well, we still carry the wounds of our suffering and our persecution as we enter into the new. Um, and he quotes Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And the greatest miracle is turning these hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. When we encounter God in the darkest moment, really in the depth of our depravities and soul's death, we are given such a faith to believe our God. Despite what we see and who we are, despite how difficult and dark the world gets, and faith given by grace will not fail us. But he says... Yet our struggles are deeply embedded in our journeys. The darkness in our world can also take up residence in us. We are easily enticed by the subtle message of the agent of darkness that whispers in our hearts that we do not need God. And then he has quite a comment on this notion of dark and light. Um, in Genesis, the Bible tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. So in Genesis, God did not do away with darkness, but he limited by placing light around us. 
And there's this continued play between light and dark, suffering and, and glory. And then I think we can't just live in, in, we can't just think about a life of perfection as being without suffering or without uh, struggles and without problems that we go through. So he says we are to live our lives facing our darkness, removing masks of self-defense and creating into our true identities revealed through Christ beyond the darkness. Um, so our lives are marked by things done and undone. Here he quotes from Romans, I have discovered this principle in life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? So we cannot even keep the promises we make, let alone the promises God commanded us to keep. Even our deepest desires are disordered. We are wretched, broken fragments of what was once beautiful. And I think when I was reading that, I also had a bit of an aha moment, and I, I thought from that Romans, uh, Romans verse is that if you have never experienced struggle, you'll never experience glory. You won't know glory. So it's almost like we know glory because we've experienced struggle. And Romans says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. So the main uh, thesis of his theology is that he practices uh, the Japanese art of kintsugi. And kintsugi is the ancient art of repairing broken teaware by reassembling ceramic pieces, creating a new and valuable property which now becomes more beautiful and more valuable than the, un than the original unbroken vessel. And I've got some pictures here which I'll pass around. Maybe you'd like to pass some of them back and I'll, I'll just show you that if you'd like to pass them around. Unfortunately, we don't have... But it's, it's, a, it's an ancient art um, practiced in Japan, which has to do with recreating or uh, broken vessels. And the way they do it is they use a lacquer which comes from the sap of the Urushi tree. They take the sap and they use that to, to glue these bits of pottery together and then they dust it with a gold dusting. So at the end of the day, the pot becomes a new creation and it has this fine pattern of gold that connects all these pieces together. And he's saying that this is more precious than the original unbroken 
vessel. So he's referencing this as our own struggles and our own brokenness, which are then not just restored by God, but made into something greater. And of course, there's the image of the gold, of the royalty, of Christ in that. And the interesting thing is that the lacquer is taken from this Urushi tree. But when they've taken the sap from the tree, the tree actually dies. So there's the idea of sacrifice also given to the creation of this new vessel. I think there's a lot of wonderful metaphors in there. Um, so some call it the celebration of the imperfect. And of course, Christ still bears... Um, the wounds of the crucifixion. So he himself still has the wounds of the crucifixion. As we go through life, we carry the wounds through us, our, our own wounds through us. And he says the act of making this newness when become this new creation, um, and it's not just a new species, but it's a new concept of what a species is. So it's a total new rethinking of everything that we've known in the past. And it, this newness starts by becoming aware of God's presence in the midst of our brokenness. It's precisely through our brokenness and fissures that God's grace can shine through, as in the gold that fills the fissures of the kitsuri. Um, and, and even through mundane acts like washing dishes, we, we can let God's grace shine through. Um, uh, let's see what my time is like. So whether the wounds we bear in this world come from, thanks, Francis, come from discrimination, injustice, or, in, or inequality, they may be the path through which we find common ground and sacrifice. So it's through our brokenness, brokenness that God's grace is, presence, is present, and it's through the grace of God that we find common, common values between all people, that we can start to build something of the new creation that Christ speaks about. So how, does, how do we do this? Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith trains our imagination to seek out the evidence of things not seen. We stand under hope to see with the eyes of our heart. And he's got a wonderful chapter on, on Mary and Martha, and I'll and that is almost a whole chapter just as a message on, his own, on its own. But I, I wanted to say one thing about Mary. Uh, first of all, Mary was the first person to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Before any of the disciples acknowledged him, Mary acknowledged him as a desire. And then Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with a jar of perfume, a whole jar that's worth a year's salary. 
Um, that's just like a creative act that she does out of absolute abundance. Um, you know, there's no, there's no thought, no plan, no plan about how I'm going to do it. It's, it's a pure creative act that she goes and does, does this thing. Um, and then Judas condemns her and says, why are you doing this? That perfume should be sold and the money given to the poor. Um, so he doesn't understand this, this act of, of abundance, this, this um, anointing of Jesus. Mary seems to have this insight into the future. She's got this, this view into the future. And think about it, Jesus goes to the cross and the only thing that he takes with him is the perfume that Mary put on his feet. And Jesus is hanging on the cross, yet God is with him through the smell, this, this fragrance of the perfume that is reserved for weddings. This perfume was only reserved for weddings. And he has with him this reminder of the wedding feast to come as he dies on the cross for us. Um, so the, Martha has, has this insight I mean, sorry, Mary has this insight to do it. And she, she does this amazing creative act. Um, and I think that's, that's just a, um, a, a, an idea to us to actually to perform, to do these things, to do these creative acts, when we don't know what the consequences of them are going to be all the time. But they have amazing outcomes So now we'll go into communion, and um, I'll write, I'll just read a bit of what he says about the Eucharist. The Eucharist assumes that we make with our own hands the very elements that will symbolize the broken body of Christ and the redemptive sacrifice that leads us to the new creation. So we're also making here, and, and there's, an, there's a making that involves a community. It's not just a one person making. So the making in, in the creative act is also a communal thing. We are making the bread. We are growing the wheat that makes the flour, that makes the bread. There's a whole community. There's a whole process of making that's involved. Um, we use the bread and wine to represent what is to come. Um, and God waits upon human making and chose to use our ability to make bread and wine to reveal Jesus' resurrected presence. So the resurrected Christ waits until we create, until the soil we cultivate is harvested, harvested and until we make to reveal himself to us. And then Garth is not here, but he would have liked this sentence that he writes. The new, the new creation breaks into and pours gold into our fractured earth. He would have liked this idea of this gold being poured into our fractured earth. So I think on that point we'll hand out the, the elements. Would you do that, God? Thanks.